Automate your security framework compliance with sponsor Drata. Drata delivers continuous compliance no matter how fast your company is growing. Find out more at drata.com slash partner slash day two cloud. That's D-R-A-T-A dot com slash partner slash day two cloud. Welcome, awesome human, to Day 2 Cloud. We're excited that you're here because we are going to be talking about Blue Team Security with our awesome guest, Swathi Joshi. She is the VP of SaaS Cloud Security over at Oracle, and she had a lot of incredible thoughts regarding security and building a security team, right, Ethan? She did. She's got a lot of experience. She came up through the ranks as an engineer, a developer in the beginning, and has tons of perspective on just how to make it in the security field. And not only that, she loves Blue Team, Ned. Like she said, she's an <laughs> adrenaline junkie. She she gets really excited about the things that are going on in Blue Team, and that excitement came out. Yeah, certainly bubbled over. So enjoy this conversation with Swathi Josie, the VP of SaaS Cloud Security at Oracle. Swathi, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. We're very excited to have you on the show to share all this good InfoSec blue teaming awesomeness. Uh, Can you tell the folks a little bit about yourself and your journey into the security space? Hey, Ned. So great to be here. So thanks, everyone who's tuned in to listen. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, a little bit about me. I'm Swathi Joshi, currently VP and Deputy CISO for Oracle SaaS Cloud. I lead a team of practitioners, everything from, you know, threat management, vulnerabilities, our adversarial engineering team or the red team, detection and response, you know, everything that comes with it, the SOC, threat intel, forensics, all of that jazz and governance risk and compliance. That's sort of the remit, the responsibility that me and my team have to protect Oracle customers' workload and data. I've been in the security industry 14 plus years now. Uh, Before this, I led the detection and response team over at Netflix. So that's been kind of interesting, moving to enterprise from consumer security. And before that, I was with Mendiant. I did incident response with Mendiant. So that also was interesting, moving from consulting into consumer security. So that's a little bit about me, Ned. Oh my goodness. It it sounds like you've seen quite a lot and I feel like we have a lot to discuss. Let's start with some basic definitions though, because you said you cover a whole bunch of different types of teams, but I didn't hear you use some of the common terms that we've heard in the industry, like red team, blue team, purple team. How do those sort of definitions map onto the teams that you manage today? And how would you define those? What are the characteristics of the teams? I was thinking about sort of this color scheme, right? I think we InfoSec people have like come up with this color wheel of like red and blue and, you know, purple and green and others. I think it's fantastic. I think it's a great way to communicate out and especially to get sort of other folks interested in it. In general, I think, you know, we have kind of two main approaches, right? Like there is proactive security. So you can think of, you know, application security, product security. How do we integrate features into our product roadmap to make the security of products better? So sort of in the proactive realm. 
And then, of course, incidents do happen, right? Like incidents arise, issues are going to happen. So there is sort of this defense mechanism where we have detection engineering, incident response, we have our SOC, we have forensics, so we have to be ready for when things happen. Then, of course, there is a whole assurance side of things, right? Like how can we do risk reduction? How can we provide, say, access assurance or assurance to our consumers that, we are doing the right thing. Um, so there is an assurance side of it. And I think then there is an interesting combination, right? Like some of the things we'll, we'll talk about in this episode is how do blue team and red team work together? Like what are some of the common themes and how can we improve security for that? I look at it from those three lens of assurance, you know, proactive security and, and defense uh, to be able to defend yourself. Um, I think all of those are quite important for a holistic security program that you want to build. And especially the one that's rooted in risk reduction, the ones that that's rooted in, hey, attackers view, one that's rooted in sort of threat base. What's the main threat that we are going to try and protect against. So I think it's interesting to kind of get this color wheel. I remember uh, an incident, you know, a couple of years ago, purple team wasn't a thing. Uh, It was still kind of, you know, coming up. And I remember going to my manager and saying, hey, I think we should get an equivalent of a red team program going, right? Like I was trying to sell to my manager, like, hey, it's time, you know, let's get a couple of people with sort of that offensive security mindset to break things. And I remember having this discussion of where should it sit in the org? You know, at the time I was also managing identity and access management and then the incident response team. And, and I remember... Um, kind of my manager saying, I don't think that kind of organizationally it fits with your team. And I kind of pushed back and I said, no, I think it would be quite beneficial, you know, to have the offensive mindset along with defense. That was still very early on in the industry. So I felt like I, I didn't do a good job of selling it, uh, but we were able to successfully stand up a team with that kind of mindset. So I think whatever you want to label them, that's fine. But I think the focus of the function should be how can I think like an attacker, right? Like if it's a red team function, how can I think like an attacker? How can I think about breaking the system for the good? So we learn from the outcomes. Uh, you mentioned these different categories, you know, offense, defense, and, and and assurance. Yeah. Now, assurance I hadn't heard of described before as a primary security function. I think of offense and defense as like tools. There's engineers that are going after things. Either they're setting up various defensive layers. Offense, we can we kind of get the idea there. Assurance feels less tangible to me. Like more, it's more governance and policy and these kind of things. Is that a correct perception? I think there is some of that, I think, because, you know, a GRC team specifically say governance, risk, compliance, and we say they also do assurance. I agree with you. I think assurance is an interesting word. When there is a qualifier to it added, right, I think there is more meaning to it. When we say access assurance or when we say identity assurance, what kind of assurance are we providing? And I think to your point, there are two kind of different ways I'm thinking about this. Providing assurance to our customers, it could be, hey, here is a pen testing report that we provide. 
let's consider an example for compliance, right? Like here is a SOC 2 report. Here is a specific standards report that we provide. Then there is a bunch of assurance or validations, verification, what whatever you want to call it, we can do for the security controls internally, right? Within our, to assess maturity or even to assess, hey, where is the gap? For example, let's consider continuous monitoring, right? Like we say, hey, here are the specific controls we map against, but how can we introduce tooling to figure out what's the deviation on a continuous basis, right? Maybe we use different EDR tooling or we use asset management, and then we cross that um, on and say, okay, for this specific control, here are a set of systems that have a deviation. Looks like they're not patching properly or they don't uptake the, the secure by default image that's set by your company. You know, I could kind of go on. So how can we kind of trust but also verify with continuous validation? That's another form of assurance, right? To check, okay, what are the gaps in some of these controls and where can we best uh, invest uh, to further mature the program. It's a combination, which in fairness, all the disciplines have that where there's going to be policies, governance, and so on, and then brought to life in an implementation way with some number of tools and processes and procedures and so on. Okay. Thank you for bringing some clarity to that. You talked about red teams a little earlier. Talk about blue teams now. If I want to build a successful blue team, what are the key characteristics that you would focus on building that team? So if we kind of look at some of the industry perspective, right, like seems like we have mainly kind of two camps. Um, there's one camp, they're like, we need sockless, we don't want any sock, we want to go fully automated. And then there is another way where people are completely pushing, you know, more resources, energy, Let's have fusion centers. Let's have a SOC. I don't have that kind of a binary view. Like it has to be fully staffed SOC or it has to be completely SOCless. I think I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. I think there are various factors, right? Like there is the type of business you're in. How big is your company? What's the risk appetite? How much is executive management willing to spend? You know, uh, what's the economic climate? There are so many factors for this. In general, for me, you know, the successful blue team practices are some of the fundamentals of security, right? Like, do we have a great incident response plan in place? Uh, when things really go bad, do we have a retainer for the skills that you don't have on your blue team? Can you pick mm. up the phone and lean on someone or call professional services? right? Um, do you have a great playbook for disclosure and incident communication? You know, how is your relationship uh, or your organization's relationship with the legal department? Do you have a standard kind of procedure on towards how to engage them, right? Like, do you have a clear severity framework? So for me, these are sort of the basic questions to ask to answer your question of 
you know, what are some of the key characteristics? It's interesting the way you, you, you put this. You've got this higher level view of the way the team should be organized and the functions that it should provide. Coming at it from a security engineer perspective, as Ned said uh, earlier before we started recording, it's like neither of us have been like full-time security professionals, but we've dabbled. Yeah. Well, I've spent a lot of time <laughs> managing firewalls and, uh, and IPSs and, and similar kind of boxes. But that those are very targeted point solutions that do very specific things. And they're part of a defense in-depth solution. I've never really had the benefit of being part of a security team that was thought of holistically like this, where you're describing all these categories of things. You got to be able to deal with an incident. Are you retaining the kind of people that can help you deal with a complex incident that you're, that you're dealing with? Do you have a disclosure playbook? You could have you know, a public impact depending on your business and so on. I never thought about that kind of stuff. It was always like, I can help you with forensics maybe. And that's about as far as it went for me. So it's a very different view you have on it. This is interesting. I think forensics, it's very important, but if you really look at, I don't like the funnel, but I do think, you know, the funnel of fidelity, like it does, you know, explain things very well, right? Like how much data are you ingesting? How much of that data is useful and is converted into alerts? How many of that alerts are actionable? And then from there, how many of them become incidents and how many of them become full-blown high severity incidents that actually need forensics work? So I think funnel is a good way, but it's not sort of the only way of representation. Yeah, to your point, like if we look at the funnel, right, like at every step, there are improvements uh, that we can have. Uh, for example, like if we say, okay, here is this much data we're ingesting. Just that as a metric is not super useful, right? Like, okay, you're ingesting all of this data. So what? <laughs> uh, the amount of data doesn't really tell us anything. We got to correlate that data. And then, as you mentioned, actionable insights before, again, from a, from an operations perspective, I want actionable items. Don't alert me on every stupid thing because I'm never going to figure, they're all going to, it's just noise. It's all noise at some point and something important is going to be lost in the noise. Send me the actionable stuff, which I think is something the vendors have been working hard on in the last five years, especially as AI grows in capability, it's getting easier to percolate up those actions, uh, actionable items and not just noise. That's sort of coverage-based, right? Like we have this much coverage, we have this much data flowing in. Don't get me wrong. Logs are useful, right? Like mm -hmm. when an incident happens, there's nothing worse than for the responder to be like, ah, if I had this logs, I would be able to answer the questions better. So yeah, I would say those were those would be a couple of characteristics of a good solid blue team. I think one of the interesting things you brought up is uh, disclosure playbook. Because one of the things that I've seen from the outside is when companies may not have that severe of a security incident, but they really botch the response, both the actual security response, but the way that they publicly communicate and disclose what happened. That can severely impact the public's perception and have a real financial impact on the business if it's not disclosed in a way that is palatable to the public, but still being honest with what actually happened. Right. And I think with the recent um, two that we have seen, right, uh, MGM and Caesars, you can kind of see in the, the two disclosures are vastly different when you see their K forms. They are, they're two kind of vastly different. You know, I would hate to think of this as, hey, there is a perception problem that you have to fix versus, hey, there is a level of integrity that you need to show. 
and that you owe to the consumers and to your customers when an event happens, right? If you kind of go with that, I think it'll solve itself. But to your point, there are also different external factors, right? Like how much you can disclose and what are your public company or a private company? You know, what type of business are you in? What type of threat actors? Um, because of which there is an incident in the first place, right? Because the truth is attribution is hard. And a lot of times attribution saying that, hey, this event happened because of these specific threat actors takes months. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult point in time to say, oh, we want to put a stake in the ground and say, this is what happened. Sometimes it's an ongoing thing. But I think to your point, if you have something, uh, have a playbook beforehand, and if you've practiced it, either tabletop it or have gone through this process with internally within the team, I think we are at a better place. We have a kind of a better shot at at handling this head on. So another challenge from the operations perspective, maybe you can shed some light on. We would get notified of new CVEs all the time. And yes. like for a while there, one of my jobs was to kind of go through all the emerging threats and then compile them down into these are the things that really matter to us because our exposure is this, or we don't actually care about this because it would only be exploitable under these circumstances and that kind of thing. How do you see threats and prioritizing threats? I mean, do you just look at a CVE score and kind of go from there or is there more to it? There's definitely more to it. So CVE scores can be helpful, right? One of the problems I have with CVE scores is it's just a data point, right? Like it's an indication. What mm -hmm. I kind of dislike is when people take that as like the ultimate truth and say, okay, this is 10 means this is a problem, right? <laughs> Actually, people who have come up with the CVE scoring themselves say, the authors themselves say that, hey, you have to consider environmental exploitability, right? As we see the vulnerability, our analysis is, hey, if there is an RCE, if there is remote code execution, then it's a problem, right? Like mm -hmm. it's a 10. But if you don't have that vulnerability in that environment, obviously, you don't think about that. But then you take it a step further, right? Okay, this specific technology stack, how is it used in your environment? Is it behind authentication? Is it in front? So you got to consider sort of that X, right? Like environmental exploitability. How easily can it be exploited in your, in your ecosystem? And then how many systems, right? Like depending on the scale, if you're talking one or two systems and you only have 10 systems, yeah, then it's a problem. It's about 20%, right? Or if you're talking a couple of handful of systems and your environment is really huge, then that kind of factors into what your severity rating is. Then also around what kind of data does it house? You know, what's the stepping stone, the you use this vulnerability and then where can you laterally move, right? So I think those are some of the factors to consider. So that's what we've we've tried to do uh, in our current program is take the CVEs, but then apply your own logic to kind of prioritize those um, and then kind of reach out to your partner teams. In reality, and, and, you know, maybe in kind of my dreamland, I would love not to be in this, you know, prioritize, fix kind of cycle, right? Like we would love to be, love for it to be a bit more proactive. How can we scan the code much early on in the deployment lifecycle and kind of fix it? 
hopefully we can do that much early on that reduces the numbers a little bit later down uh, in the chain. You're talking about like in a, in a dev environment, making sure that the code that goes out the door is uh, is, is solid code? Yes. Okay. Yeah, which if you're a consumer of code from a third party, some of that's beyond your control. Um, or, or or is it, I guess? Because I guess if you get into open source, you could be proactive if you want it to be. That's right. I've had a situation happen on our team where once the vulnerability was found, one of the developers on the team was also a contributor for the you know open source uh, community. So that was a great win, right? We were able to come up with a solution, not only for our systems, but also push it out to the rest of the industry. So I think that is ideal. But to your point, there are a lot of you know, third-party libraries. Um, some of it is not in your control, right? And that's okay that that's the ecosystem. So how can we collectively kind of contribute? I think that's more important. That reminds me of S-bombs. And that might be a whole other episode just talking about those. Maybe we don't want to delve too deeply. But uh, just overall, are you using um, the software bill of materials in any way to assess uh, threats or to do any kind of uh, scanning of your existing software? Yeah, I think you're right. I think maybe a whole episode uh, for y'all <laughs> would be would be awesome on that topic. Um, in general, I do think that it's a tool that you can you can kind of um, utilize. I would say it's kind of still in the early stages. How effectively can you kind of integrate that in into um, sort of your everyday operations. I think some mm-hmm. companies have done that successfully. And I think it's also in a way a policy tool, right? And now we have to look at the governance and assurance of it. But in general, I welcome the change. I think this is something that was needed. In the industry, is it an effective tool or not? I think a few years, maybe. <laughs> Remains to be seen. <laughs> yes. I gotcha. The security department has gained a reputation as being the department of no. No, you can't do that. No, you're not allowed to deploy that thing. And sometimes that's totally legitimate. And sometimes that means that whoever's asking finds a way to circumvent the security group because they need to get their job done. How do you think of balancing the requirements of effective security with the need of those other folks to just get their job done. Let's take a quick sponsor break. Drata, D-R-A-T-A, provides compliance automation. That means if you're working with a security framework like SOC 2, ISO 27001, PCI DSS, GDPR, HIPAA, CCPA, FIEC, various NIST standards, or CMMC, Drata helps. Over 3,000 companies use Drata, including Lemonade, Notion, and Fivetran. Drata collects information from your tech stack and maps it onto security frameworks using over 80 integrations, including AWS, Azure, GitHub, Okta, and Cloudflare. Drata offers automated, dynamic policy templates you implement to become compliant. Drata will continuously monitor your compliance state so you'll know if a system becomes non-compliant and can alert the system owner. What if you need some advice? Drata has a team of former auditors who have conducted 500-plus audits available for your questions, including regular meetings and pre-audit planning. So say goodbye to manual evidence collection and hello to automated compliance by visiting drata.com slash partner slash day2cloud. That's D-R-A-T-A dot slash partner slash day2cloud. Bringing automation to compliance at Drata speed. 
One of the things that I have fought really hard throughout my career is not being the department of no, right? Like how can we be enablers to the business? When I worked at Netflix, so the security team's model was like, how can we not be gatekeepers, right? Um, guardrails and not gates was sort of how we would explain it. And I think for me, I I like that phrasing because we do want to put some type of guardrails, right? Uh, Guardrails around integrity, confidentiality, you know, data availability, all of these things. But we don't want to be the gatekeeper. We don't want to say, hey, no. One effective way is really how to foster collaboration. As cliched as, as it sounds, it's like, how can we work with the dev teams? How can we work with the operations and infrastructure teams to kind of enable that? And then the other portion is around, I think, if you talk about building security teams, right? I often say security as a function should be centralized and as a responsibility should be decentralized. For example, a lot of the controls, right, like that I have, I can't alone solve it. I need the help from my operations counterparts or infrastructure counterparts, my engineering counterparts, you know, legal. So there are all of these teams involved. So I will help with risk mediation, right? When an incident happens, it's the responsibility of the security team to push it towards closure. But the risk itself is a lot of times shared between different business leaders. Um, So I think that's kind of another factor how we can introduce the concept of guardrails and not be a department of no. Okay, you mentioned working with other teams. Okay, so I'm reflecting on several of the groups that I've been a part of over time. One shop comes to mind in particular where security was intentionally off to the side, an independent group. They weren't in our IT shop. I mean, very of us in IT ops had security functions, but there was a separate security group. We only interacted in, they'd kind of like parachute in, you know, and then say things or they'd audit our desk. You left a diagram out naughty and, uh, you know, or, and, and would tell us no, as Ned was joking when he opened up this segment. I mean, it feels like an organizational problem if the thinking is that way. But I I respect the intent of of an organization that does things that way. You want the security people to be, to function autonomously so that they're not corrupted, if you will, by being too close to the functions that they're trying to protect. I agree. I see the intention behind that, right? Like, hey, here is a security function. And and we do want that. We want people who worked in security or, or have done IT and development in the past who are now security practitioners. I would say placement of the security team within an organization is not the only lever that you can use to be effective. It's one of the levers. And I think if you are in some organizations, I know security reports into the CIO or it's a purely, you know, with IT function. In some of the other organizations, now we have seen predominantly security reporting into the engineering function, right? Um, It's clubbed in there. And in some of the other organizations, I've seen security standalone, like you mentioned. I think all of these kind of three models have their pros and cons. And I think in some environments, some of the models fit better. I think the problem comes up, say, if you're a technology company and if your product is a technology I think I've seen it being quite beneficial when the security teams fits within the technology team, right? So that's, you know, better. There's no degree of separation. They're better aligned. 
I'm also seeing the shift in the industry where the CISO role is becoming a combining of the CISO and the CIO role. It's becoming a combo role. I think especially in cloud forward and native cloud companies, IT and security are the product of the same. So they're getting combined. I think that's that's kind of interesting shift to see how CISOs are also playing the dual roles. They're also managing IT and they're also managing security. I think lots of pros with that, right? If an issue happens, then, hey, IT is right there. It's part of your organization and you work together as one team. From an IT perspective in ops, I wanted to know what the security team expected. And I hated it when they parachuted in and told us we did a bad thing. It's like, well, if you told us ahead of time, (laughs) we would have done it different, you know, kind of thing. Yes. And there was just a, the, the wall of separation made communications overly challenging at times. And when we could work with the security teams, especially during a design phase where they were right there in the room going, uh, I see what you drew up there, but because of this reason or that reason, we should probably put a firewall there and we need to have this inspection here. And, you know, and also, and then we go, oh, okay. And then we'd bake that right into the design. would become part of the budget. It was way easier than having security come in at the last minute and trying to retrofit a design that everyone else had signed off on until uh, security comes in at the last minute and tells us no. Yes. And I think from this side, I would say, why didn't you involve me early on? I didn't even know this was going <laughs> yeah. on. You yeah. always call security the last we are last one to show up and and the project is already off the door, right? And I would say that. And of course, my team would come to me and say, Oh my God, Swati, we have so many things going on. So the, here are another 10 projects that we want to do, right? There is also sort of you know overworked security teams, and there's so much going on, and there is cannot enough budget. So no, I agree. I think it's a it's a multitude of things kind of coming together, right? Like it's never this one reason for us to be successful or not successful. Right. And I, I have seen the harried security professional who's just running from thing to thing, putting out the fires, right? Yes. And if only there were more of them, they could spread themselves out a little bit more. Uh, so speaking of that, teams are made up of individuals and you've built teams. So when you're building a team, uh, what do you think makes an effective security practitioner? What do you look for in an individual you want to bring onto your team? I can answer this question a lot of times for folks trying to get into security, right? And mm-hmm. it's, I think everybody kind of has a, has a similar answer, which is not true. Like be curious, you know, be able to learn things, you know, things like that. I think as you kind of move along in your career, there are two kind of things I've seen specifically personally with my career, right? Initially, I had the privilege of working in different technical domains of security. I started Mm -hmm. as a SOC analyst, you know, looking through logs. Then I did some forensics work. I uh, Then I did some um, risk analysis work. I did compliance work. Then I became a founding application security engineer. So I was able to learn and get introduced to kind of different facets of security, which was very, very useful. So what you would call me would be a generalist, right? Like I'd done various things. So then then came a point in my career when I interviewed with a couple of big companies. They were like, hey, Swati, you're so great, but we kind of don't know where to put you, which (laughs) team to put you in, right? 
So then I realized, oh, well, I have a specialization problem. I've been in the security industry for six, seven years at that point. And that early part of my career was focused on proactive security, right? Like I said, compliance, risk, uh, application security, vulnerability scanning, um, you know, code scanning, things like that. So then I said, okay, what is the market telling me? The market is telling me that, okay, these bigger companies have sort of larger teams and larger security focus. They're looking for specialists. And that's when I kind of looked at my kind of portfolio and my resume and looked at my skills and said, okay, what I'm missing is sort of the defense experience, right? Like the blue team stuff that we've been talked about. So Mm -hmm. the six years of my life, two years at Mandiant and then four years at Netflix was specialization. I specialized in incident response, detection engineering, sort of the various defense operations. So not tools necessarily, but specific functions? That's right. Great call out, specific functions and skill set that's needed. And of course, tools are a portion of it, right? Like along the way, of course, you need tools either bought or built, uh, you know, depending on what environment you're in to help get the job done. Um, so yeah, I would I would say to make an effective security practitioner, both a generalized view of like, hey, I've worked in these different technical domains that gave me a, a great perspective to understand how each of these domains work. But then I think, you know, where is your heart? Like I'm a blue teamer <laughs> at heart, right? So kind of specialization of like, hey, that's kind of what I love. And for some people, it's kind of writing code, you know, being a software engineer, and then they specialize in security, whatever that is, and kind of have a, having a specialization. And then at the end of that specialization, I was like, okay, now maybe it'll be really fun to run an end-to-end security program, kind of combine all of these things, right? So that's been really rewarding for me to kind of do that last two years to run a larger program. Do you find that the fact that you started out as a generalist gave you an easier path to figuring out what you wanted to specialize in? You had an opportunity to see there's all these different disciplines out there. And this one in particular resonates with me. So I think I want to pursue that one. I do think that it has helped me tremendously to be able to look at sort of different sides. But to answer your question, is it the only way or is that necessary? Probably not. I know so many friends, uh, you know, in the industry who've kind of followed, you know, one specific specialization or who Mm -hmm. love doing one thing, but they have grown by learning and seeing what other people are doing around them. But they're very clear on, hey, this is my passion. This is what I want to do. The other key thing also for me to find my specialization was the feedback that I got from my peers, from my mentors, from my, you know, direct reports and my manager. I would always find myself, uh, the feedback that I got was, Swati, you're so calm under pressure. So IR comes naturally to you. So when I started kind of getting that feedback, I thought, oh, well, maybe this is a field that I can actually go in and be successful. Um, So kind of, you know, listening to that feedback, listening to that nuggets to say, okay, this seems um, kind of an interesting thing. And also, I think like your personal inclination, right? (laughs) I find myself being a bit of an adrenaline junkie, right? Like the chase is very (laughs) exciting. So I was like, okay, maybe this is a good match for what? 
my managers and others are saying I'm good at and also what I personally like gravitate towards. So yeah, to, to your question, kind of trying these different things did help me, you know, find out where, where, um, where I could go specialize in and actually enjoy. You mentioned two things that I want to call out there. Um, even if you don't start with a generalist beginning, even if you start with a specialization, you mentioned that those specialists still needed to be aware of disciplines that were adjacent to them yes. and learn about those things and where their speciality existed in the larger holistic view of security. And then the other thing you mentioned was, regardless of your position, listening to feedback and and taking that feedback constructively and using that to inform your career. I think those are two huge takeaways, regardless of how you start your career. Absolutely. And irrespective of where you're in your career journey, right? Often people look at it, this, this linear line of, you know, uh, IC and manager and director and senior director, not really, right? Like it's never really linear because there is, you know, impact and scope and then the type of work you're doing and pay increase, you know, all of these kind of things that you don't see on your LinkedIn profile, like all you see is the title and the name. Um, so kind of thinking beyond that. Yeah, but but great. Thank you for summarizing those takeaways. Yes. Now, you seem to love Blue Team, Swathi. This seems to be your thing. And you said Adrenaline Junkie. Now, first of all, that's funny to me because I would have thought the Adrenaline Junkie part would come as the Red Team. Oh, if they picked up the USB <laughs> key and put it in. Yes, we're in. We're in. That's where the yes. Adrenaline would come from for me. But but I, 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 I can see both sides of that, I guess. Yeah. Now, do you think... Uh, to really understand InfoSec, should I have had positions in both red team and blue team so that I have the whole picture of what InfoSec is about? I would say as a hiring manager, if you had both of those skills, that would be highly attractive for me as a hiring manager, <laughs> right? So I don't think there is a rule, obviously, but I do think it provides an incredible perspective to be able to be an attacker and a defender. Right. And even other skills, like, for example, if you've done risk and if you've done governance or, you know, like communication is increasingly becoming very important for security teams. So, yeah, for me as a hiring manager and generally also looking at the industry trends, if you've done kind of both roles, I think first off, it would be personally very rewarding to learn kind of these two different disciplines. And from the industry side, as a hiring manager, I think they're very desirable skills to have. Is that a common path? Do people tend to have had both red team and blue team experience? I don't know if it's as common, but I think as leaders, we should enable sort of that move, right? A lot of times, you know, what I hear from other folks is like, oh, uh, looks like you've done only blue team or you've been a security analyst or a detection engineer or, you know, forensics person, then kind of slot you into the blue team. I think maybe we really need to get out of that mindset to say, okay, you've done the blue team stuff. And then now maybe, you know, time to kind of move over. So how can we give that mobility versus not really kind of box people in, which is, I think, kind of what happened to me. And I had to like work really hard to get out of that box. I did. I mean, I was never on a security team where I was like, you're on the blue team. It was mostly like, you know, I'm doing defensive stuff as the nature of my job, mostly as a network engineer. But I always felt like I was at a disadvantage because I'd never worked as a, as a hacker. I didn't know how they were thinking. And so that I felt like 
I don't even know what I'm defending against exactly. I know these are best practices. I know how to build a defense in depth solution, but I don't understand how an attacker would look at the infrastructure that I built and find their way around it. And it's like, I felt like if I'd known that, maybe I would have built some more robust infrastructure and made better recommendations for my org. Right on. I think that's exactly what I was kind of getting to is having that perspective changes the way you think, right? And that's a, that's a huge win to be a better security practitioner is if you had sort of a linear thinking, now you've considered another input into that thinking. And now it's like, oh, okay, this is how I can make it better. There's no better outcome than that. With your hiring manager hat still on, do you think that there's a particular personality type that is better suited for security? Like you said, you got a little bit of the adrenaline junkie in there, maybe someone who's like kind of a control freak or is very uh, process driven. Like, is there a personality type that's perfect for security? Or do you think anybody could do it if they're feeling sufficiently motivated? I think honestly, anybody could do it. I don't think there is a specific personality type. You know, I, I will say that when you're kind of trying to assemble a really top-notch team, you do want to consider, you know, different aspects. Um, and I'm not just saying, you know, gender diversity or identity diversity. In general, like neurodiversity, right? Like how people think. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this great kind of model by uh, Simon Wardley talks about town planners, settlers, and builders, right? Like you need all three different kinds of people, people who just want to build, they want to do innovative stuff, this new shiny thing, they build it, and then they're done. Then it's like, okay, who's going to maintain it? You know, who's going to continue to run it? So we need the town planners, and we need the settlers. And also, I think thinking of it as how to solve a specific problem, for example, we were trying to build our studio incident response function with Netflix much better, you know, studio uh, was growing really rapidly at Netflix when I was there, Uh, a bunch of shows were being made. And the very creative people, right? It's like, hey, we want somebody to kind of sit with us, you know, uh, be part of this creative process. So we said, okay, we need somebody in LA because we wanted somebody to be physically closer to that team. And then we said, okay, can we get someone who has worked worked in a highly collaborative cross-functional environment, right? So we found somebody amazing from NASA because they have worked on these really, Mm -hmm. you know, high stakes missions for security and work with various different teams. So they knew how to kind of navigate that. And then we paired that person with another person who came from Disney. So who understood the, you know, entertainment industry and how things work there. They knew the business model. So when Mm -hmm. we kind of put those two people together, it was amazing. We were able to stand up a program and be able to uh, handle and drive the incidents down, anticipating growth ahead, right? So to kind of answer your question of like, how can we consider sort of these various different skill set and also backgrounds and how we can kind of put that together to form an effective team? Well, that's a great example with the, with the NASA and the Disney, you put them together and it's just magic. <laughs> it works. It works. <laughs> Uh, If someone is interested in making the move into InfoSec from another technical field, are there any recommended skills or training that you think they should undergo? Is there a certification that you would recommend to them to get started or or some other path that I'm not thinking of? 
I have mixed feelings about this whole certification industry. So I will keep <laughs> that. I will keep that aside. And I also think we should be sort of having a hey entry level job, and you have to have a master's or a bachelor's. I don't <laughs> think you know that's really really kind of fair. So my kind of background and journey has been conventional. I think I started. I started uh, with an engineering background, so I started as a Java developer. And then I quickly learned that, hey, my code is going through some scans, right? Like, and then, you know, you're fresh out of college, you think you're amazing and you're so talented and you do <laughs> all these things. And then you're like, who is this scanning my code and pointing out all these flaws, you know? So that's how I kind of got introduced to security. Um, and at the time, I only had, you know, you know, Java development skills. It's not like I was a security person. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did do my security plus certifications, really trying to figure out, okay, what are some of the basic concepts? And I think that really helped me. And then it was more intentional from me to say, hey, I wanted to do my master's. Do I want to do my master's in a in like more generic computer science or do I want to pick specialization? So I picked security as a specialization. And that's kind of how I started. And for me, that has worked. But I know that's not kind of everybody's path, right? Going to school is not always kind of the best uh, thing to do. But I think trying to figure out, you know, if you can get a certification, there are so many open source tools out there, you know, kind of mm-hmm. playing with it, I think is a great start. And then, you know, the, the first step breaking in is going to be hard, but you have to keep at it multiple rejections, you know, all of that is like really part and parcel of it, unfortunately. But I would say keep pushing. Isn't there a dearth of possible humans to fill cybersecurity positions? Supposedly, there's a million open spots and no one to fill them, right? Absolutely. Hiring is extremely hard in this field. So I think if if there was one takeaway from this podcast, if people are listening, if you all want to get into cybersecurity, it's a great field. It's a great industry. We will try to do a better job of not putting, you know, job postings out there entry level and you need five to six experience, uh, six years experience. <laughs> we will try to do that. And also, I think, you know, it would be a great opportunity for people in adjacent fields, right? Like people who mm-hmm. are in product management to get into sort of security product management, people who have been doing IT program or project management to get into security program management. Um, so I think there are all these kind of adjacent fields uh, that people can pivot into security. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know I started on help desk way back in the day working on supporting registers running windows 95 which was yes. awful and i don't want to go into that too deeply but uh one of the ways that i got away from help desk was being curious and asking questions of the network and server teams that i worked close to and just asking questions and showing a curiosity to learn propelled me beyond the help desk and into a, a more general sort of sysadmin position and i think that really helped so Maybe just being curious and asking questions could be enough. That's true. And I think one personality trait, now I think more, one personality trait that does come to mind is you have to have a positive attitude. In general, security, you know, you see a lot of bad things happening, right? Like, oh, this hole is not plugged. Oh, here is an issue. Hey, here is a problem. Here is a fire that's burning. 
you know so i think how to kind of balance that with the positive attitude of hey yeah there are these issues but we've also made a lot of progress we've also made a bunch of things really secure we've also avoided these things so i think from a practitioner view kind of having that level headed positive mindset i think will take you really far um it's not about one job it's about building your career right so it will take you really far in your career and as a hiring manager and as a manager i think how can we celebrate the wins and not just always focus on there's always an issue there's always a problem right like that's why we are here to fix it but how can we also celebrate some of the success we've had some of the large projects we are able to really push towards a resolution I love it. I love ending on a positive note. If folks want to know more about you, is there somewhere they can go to follow you or is there a blog that you'd like to promote, you know, whatever whatever you got? Yeah, great question. I think this is one indication to say Swati, you should start your blog. Maybe maybe <laughs> I should. <laughs> but I am on LinkedIn. I'm not that active on Twitter X, uh, but if you do send me a DM, I will I will try and respond. But I'm active on LinkedIn, so yeah, LinkedIn would be the best source. Absolutely. That seems to be the case for us as well. Well, Swathi, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, listeners, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear about them. You can hit either of us up at Day 2 Cloud Show on Twitter, or you can fill out the request form at day2cloud.io. Did you know that you don't have to scream into the technology void alone? The Packet Pushers Podcast Network has a free Slack group that's open to everyone. Visit packetpushers.net slash Slack and join. It's a marketing-free zone for engineers to chat, compare notes, tell war stories. Hey, maybe even get into InfoSec or ask some folks who already are. Definitely check that out, packetpushers.net slash Slack. And until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.